What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Active Life Podcast. I'm Dr. Sean Pastuch. I'm your host, and today's guest is Patrick Sweeney, aka the Fear Guru. The reason I wanted to have Patrick on today is because I sat on a dais with Patrick giving a talk at Spartan Race Media Fest at their world championships in Lake Tahoe back in September. And I just thought he was such an impressive dude with the way that he talks about fear and the way that he conquers his fear. And when I say conquers, it's really more turns it into a performance enhancing tool. Patrick was young and he saw a plane crash and was forever after that afraid to get on planes. That is, of course, until he became a pilot to take that fear and turn it into something positive for himself. We actually don't dive into that story on the show. I just wanted you guys to be able to understand the level of depth that this guy has. He used all the things that he learned working with neuroscientists for seven years, experimenting on himself for a lifetime. He took all of those things that he learned and he turned them into keynotes talk, keynote talks, uh, books, videos, programs for for business owners. The guy's a monster. Okay, he works with people like Lance Armstrong, the CEO of Lifetime Athletic, Lifetime Fitness. I don't know. They can come after me if I get the name wrong. But he's working with the top of the top of the top to help them break down their fears and turn them into positive fuel so that they can build confidence and they can go ahead and attack the real world. This is a podcast that you are going to enjoy because we talk about the fear around money and what money means to all of us and how we can change the way that we think about it, how we can physically change the way that we use it, we can change our entire lives. I know you guys are going to enjoy this podcast. I'm not going to keep you from it any longer. So let's get you to Patrick Sweeney, the fear guru. All right, Active Lifers, I have a special guest for you today. His name is Patrick Sweeney. You might know him as the Fear Guru, and he's coming to us from France today. What's up, Patrick? Bonjour, Sean. (laughs) Bonjour. I think that means hello, yeah? Yes, it does. (laughs) Perfect. Is it? No, this is going to, you know, here I go, being ignorant right away on the show. It's not a hello and goodbye like aloha, right? No, but there is a French version of that. What is it? Salut. Okay. Almost, almost like the Italian uh, toast, but it's S-A-L-U-T. So you can say salut as hello, or you can say salut as goodbye. So it's a little aloha-ish with a French twist. There we go. They got, they got it simplified in some ways, the French. And the Italians have ciao as well. You can do that for both. I didn't know you could do ciao as hello. I thought that was just a goodbye. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it's definitely a hello. So uh, we're... 20 minutes from Italy, uh, where my house in Chamonix is. So, uh, so we go to Italy all the time and, and we're about, uh, half an hour from Switzerland and they don't have, they don't have anything easy that way either. That's very strict. That sounds like a good spot to be. It's, it's the best spot in the world. All right. I'll keep that in mind when I'm looking for the next best spot in the world to go see myself. So John, you are welcome here anytime. Thank you. I appreciate that. Patrick, I want, I want to jump into, I think, maybe the most important question that we're going to ask on this whole show, and I want to ask it first, because it will set the table for everybody as to why they need to pay attention to the rest. And that question is, you know, how is it possible for people to take something that is so debilitating, which is fear, and yeah. use it as fuel to drive them forward? I know people have heard, you know, the whole Mike Tyson talking about turning his fear into rage thing. But that was Mike Tyson. And most of the people listening to this are just (laughs) not Mike Tyson. So how how, how do you help people do that? Well, it's the culmination, Sean, really, of a a very dramatic life change for me. And more importantly, for your listeners, six years of neuroscience research and, and interviewing more than three dozen of the world's best neuroscientists from Harvard to MIT to Stanford to NYU and one of the things it comes down to is we're running a two million year old piece of software on our survival brain. And what that software is programmed to do is help us survive. The only thing it cares about is procreating our genes onto the next generation. So anything that might have been a threat a couple million years ago, our body 
gets primed for action, gets primed for performance. So we produce this, this amazing fear cocktail when something threatens us. So when the amygdala, which is this little gland in the base of our brain that's shaped like an almond, when that lights up, when, when that gets uh, sensory information that says there's a threat, and we start producing DHEA, adrenaline, cortisol, all these enzymes, and they can give us superhuman performance if we know how to, if, if we can understand how to harness that performance, then what happens is we, we think better. So everyone knows we, you know, we get stronger. The, the stories you've heard about a 130 pound woman lifting up a car to, to save a kid who's trapped underneath it. Mm-hmm. That's because we use a hundred percent of our muscular power, which we never do. Even as a trained athlete, when I was training for the Olympics, the most you could get to was 70 or 75%. But when fear kicks in, you can get close to 100%. Same with our mental capabilities. We normally have this thing called the blood-brain barrier, which limits the amount of blood flow and oxygen we get to our brain. When we get that amygdala response, that thing just opens up like a floodgate. So we can really think better, we can act quicker, we can process more, have better mental acuity. It's amazing the change that we have, but the, the, the tough part there, Sean, is, is controlling it, is coming, being able to take advantage of it. Yeah, that was that's something that to me strikes as very clear is that physiologically everything in our world changes when we're afraid. You can feel your hands start to get sweaty. You can start to feel the hair on the back of your neck stand up. You can even look down at your forearm and you have goosebumps or if you have hairy arms, the hair is standing up on your arms as well. And there's like that tunnel vision that you run into if you're really in a heightened state. And I think that you you hit on a major point there, which is if you can control that, it can be extremely valuable. And I want to get to how somebody can do that in a moment. It's you said something earlier, which was that all of our decision making is essentially rooted in rec- procreation and survival. And yeah. when I was at a workshop that we were giving uh, in Boston, we had a debate amongst our staff members. Somebody actually said, "You know, all of our decisions." are rooted in the survival of our genes, which means we need to live and our, you know, offspring need to be able to be created and then they need to be able to live. What are your thoughts on, on the idea that all decisions that we make are rooted in the survival and thriving of our offspring? I I think they can be, if you let them, Sean, what, what every decision I think we make comes down to one of two choices. We can either make a decision out of fear And it's always going to lead to regret. It's going to lead to shame. It's going to lead to failure. Or we can make a decision based on opportunity. And that always leads to growth. It leads to happiness, fulfillment, and success. Every decision we've ever made, you can distill down to being either a fear-based decision like you talked about, which is just, I want to react, I want to survive, or an opportunity-based decision. I want to thrive. I want to live. Because our limbic brain, the part of our, our brain where the amygdala is, is in charge, that's just there for survival. That doesn't care about going on vacation in Fiji. That doesn't care about building up a kick-ass business. That doesn't care about you know having the, the partner of your dreams and having this amazing relationship. All it cares about is you passing those genes on to your next generation. So, Patrick, I want to keep it really specific and really narrow so that we can go fairly deep. And I want to talk about the fear response around having, spending, and acquiring money. No, man, that's a a tough one, Sean. I tell you, there's, you know, I I do a bunch of these keynotes, probably uh, 30 to 40 keynote speeches uh, every year. And a lot of them are to sales organizations. And there's, there's a couple of critical fears that people come into. And most of the time, they aren't even aware of them. Uh, but the but the fear of loss or what's called loss aversion is one of the biggest things that holds us back. And, and that comes to overvaluing things that we have and not valuing enough things that we don't have. The other is this this uh, difficulty people have in embracing abundance. So being able to say, yeah, I can have it all. I can have a great business. Uh, I can go out and, and also get that that car I want or take that vacation I want to do. I can spend money on training even though I'm just starting out this business because I know that that investment is an investment in me and I'm going to learn something from that and good things are going to happen. So there's a, 
there's a whole lot of uh, fear around money. Loss aversion is one of the key things. The, the analysis paralysis and overthinking things out of fear and, and not taking advantage of something often leads to another fear, which is the a fear of regret. And so, uh, and interestingly enough, that, that fear of regret, um, studies have shown, affects women more than it affects men. So that's something that, that your listeners, your, your female listeners need to be cognizant of as well, because that the fear of regret can be debilitating in the future because you think, well, I didn't sell that investment property. I didn't sell my house when it was at the height of the market. And I really regret that. So now I'm going to, you know, now that's going to affect my decisions going forward. And I, I imagine it makes sense to me that women would have more of a response to this because their seed, right, their egg is far yeah. more valuable than our sperm. You know, it's interesting in the neuroscience research is, uh, is women have much bigger cycles in confidence depending on their, their menstrual cycle. Interesting. So, uh, and they also have different levels of attractiveness to men. And I'll give you an, an interesting tip that uh, uh, some unique neuroscience research came out with that strippers, oddly enough, who are on birth control make less money on average than strippers who aren't. And the neuroscientists came up with the idea that when they're in their menstrual cycle, they're number one, more confident, and number two, because of the, the pheromones and uh, different enzymes that they're producing, they're more attractive to men. That is interesting. I can just about guarantee that we have at least one stripper who listens to this show and you might've just changed her financial outlook. My, my best advice to the strippers out there is don't go on the pill. <laughs> <laughs> no IUDs either. I imagine just let that, let, let it go. Let your body do That's it. That's it. Let it go. <laughs> so, so Patrick, what I find, and I was, I was in this, what I would, what I would, I guess define as a loop for a long time myself. And that's why I think I'm able to identify it in other people. And I would love for you to help us unpack it is when it comes to money, people buy the way that they sell and they sell the way that they buy. And the way that they buy and the way that they sell is rooted in their life experiences that they had prior to that and the way that people yeah. around them maybe would judge them for the decisions that they make. At least that's been my interpretation. You would know better as you know the guy who studied the neuroscience for seven years and all the things that you've done that we're going to get into. What is it? that stops people in their tracks when it comes to money, but that same person would be more than happy to get into a scrap in the street. That same person is more than happy to get under really heavy weight in the gym or throw themselves down a ski slope. But now it comes to, Hey, you're going to spend thousands of dollars that you're not sure you can make back. So you have total paralysis by total analysis. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you're, you're touching on two important aspects, Sean, that, that we can't go super deep into given the time constraints, but I want to put them out there for your listeners so they can understand. Um, I've worked with a lot of Navy SEALs and a lot of Special Forces guys who are the pinnacle of courage when it comes to physical courage, right? They'll, they'll jump out of a plane at 30,000 feet in the middle of a storm over a dark ocean, right? And, and not bat an eyelash. That's because they've spent so much tra- time training physical courage, Right, uh, things like fears of heights or fears of water or that sort of thing. We have three types of courage, or sorry, three types of fears. And in the book, uh, in my book, I call it the the terror triangle. So there's three sides to it. One is physical courage. The other is emotional courage, and the the bottom one is instinctual. So so the fears that are rooted in those three things: physical fears, emotional fears, and instinctual fears we all inherently have, and you can think about it, right? So your physical fear, like you're saying, might be if you get in a fight on the street or, or uh, if you're, you know, you're afraid to pick up, to, to bench press 225 pounds the first time or whatever it is. Physical courage is, is easy to define. Emotional courage, things like uh, emotional fears might be fear of abandonment or fear of rejection. And then you have instinctual fears, which are things like sharks, and snakes and, and spiders, things that make no sense at all, right? There's 
25 or 30 million people who go swimming in, in the ocean a year and less than 10 people every year die of sharks, right? It's one of the most ridiculous fears uh, possible. And in Cape Cod, it's, it's crazy how much people are capitalizing on it and, you know, taking advantage of that. But, but those three things, that's how you can have someone who's super courageous when it comes to physical, but if they haven't cognizantly trained the emotional and the, the instinctual stuff, then they're going to have a big fear of loss. Or they're also going to have fears of exceeding where their tribe thinks they should go. That's another another important one we can touch on. I would love to get that one in a second. We can come to that one next. I relate strongly to the emotional fear that you're describing. And my my reason for saying that is for years, I would tell people, Patrick, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have emotions. Right? Like I don't I don't get sad. I don't get really happy. I'm just kind of like, yeah, that's me. But then when people would call me on it, they'd be like, dude, I remember you striking somebody out in a baseball game and going berserk, like screaming at them as yeah. they walked back to the <laughs> dugout. That is emotion, right? That, that you definitely have that. And the sure. more I thought about that, I'm like, all right, well then why aren't I willing to, to go there on a regular basis? And it, I realized after being coached on it, that I paid a coach to teach me, right? I'm like, I wasn't, I wasn't allowing myself to be open to my wife and not allowing myself to be open to my wife was holding me back from having the best relationship I possibly could, despite the fact that our relationship yeah. was good by all measures. And that that was leading to me making financial decisions that I was afraid, you know, I was, I was acting out of fear. I'm not going to take this risk because blah, 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 blah. And, the, and it's wild. So I totally relate to that. And what, what do you mean by, um, essentially what I would say, I'll kick in the coverage, but what do you mean by being worried about outperforming where our group believes we're supposed to be? Well, well, Sean, I'll give you a, a little bit of my personal story. Uh, I grew up son of first generation Irish immigrant in a blue collar neighborhood of Boston. And, uh, my dad was working three jobs. So no one in my family ever went to college and we'd have this quick pancakes, uh, two or three nights a week, right? Because all you have to do is buy Bisquick and mix it with water. So that was all we could afford. And I couldn't, I couldn't eat a fucking pancake until I was about 28 years old again, because, you know, I said, I'm, I'm never having pancakes again in my life. And one of the things that, that was put into our head as children, and this, this, the, you know, there's this whole science behind your fear frontier, everything that happens to you before you're 10 or 12 year old, 12 years old is what's affecting how you act today. So one of the things that was put into my head is a great job and what you need in this family is to become a cop. Or if you want to really, you know, have your calling, become a priest. And, you know, maybe if you're not good enough to do either one of those, you can become a teacher. And that's, that's your upper limit. So my family saying, you know, if you can make 50 grand a year, as a cop, you, you got it made. Nice, you know, nice job, Patty. You're kicking ass. Well, benefits so we and pension, get those, right? Benefits and pension. You're safe. That's it. Yeah. And so you, you get those things in your mind and, and those set your upper limit. So then now, uh, you know, one of the ways that I was trying to find self-esteem, I was, I was terrified of everything as a kid. I got, I got my ass kicked by a local bully named Hubba who used to chase me around my grandfather, when he got angry, he'd take his belt off and, you know, he'd lay us over the bed and, and whip us with his belt. I mean, I, I had this upbringing where I was terrified to, to even talk to girls or, or whatever. So I started to build up this, you know, this, this armor around me, this cocoon, this image. And I first thought, and, and maybe this is where you went, Sean, is I first thought if I build up this image, then it'll, it'll give me some self-esteem. It'll give me some self-confidence. Because who I am is just this big pussy who's afraid of everything, who's not worthy of a damn thing. So I started getting into athletics, and, and I ended up spending five years training for the Olympics, finished second in the Olympic trials in rowing, and raced the World Cup for three years. And I thought this would teach me you know, confidence and courage and, and everything else, and it didn't. It just kept adding to this, to this shell I was building around me, right? And that shell oftentimes, like you just said, Sean, was about not showing my emotion, right? I can't show that I'm sad. I can't show that I'm mad. I can't show that I'm angry or upset. And then after the Olympics, I got into a couple of good business schools and, and I thought, okay, 
if I make money, that will get me self-confidence and that'll get me the ability to, to be really courageous and find the authentic me. So I'm going to make 40 million bucks by the time I'm 40 years old. And that was my goal after the Olympics is 40 by 40. Fuck everything else. You know, I had a great girlfriend who's now my wife and, you know, she could deal with stuff on her own. I got to, I got to make this money. And that was it. And we started to have a, you know, kids. And, and uh, when our daughter was a year old, that's when I found out I had a really rare form of leukemia. And up until that point, I mean, I was building up such this armor. I was wearing $10,000 suits and $25,000 watches in a startup, right? You know, we were, we were 50 people and I'm running around like, um, I'm Gordon Gecko on wall street. Uh Right. And it was, it was just the armor I was building up. And it, it wasn't just like you're saying, Sean, it wasn't the authentic me. It wasn't, wasn't me willing to, to trust and, and love who I was internally. And it wasn't until, you know, I almost died on an operating table at Johns Hopkins when, when I finally realized, you know, fuck all this. I, I, I need to be the real me. Well, that's a wild way. I don't think everyone's going to have the opportunity to do that. And good for them, right? For not having to, yeah, to go through exactly. all that. So how does somebody uh, take the fast path to making more, I don't know if the word is even objective or, or how does somebody make decisions with less fear when it comes to chasing opportunity as opposed to running from potential loss and uncertainty? Yeah. Well, you know, Sean, the, the most important thing to keep in mind is that every one of our dreams, all of, all the life that we dream of is on the other side of fear. And what hot more and more, especially is that if, if we're feeling fear, we should run away from it. Right. Or we should go find someone to, to take care of it for us. And then, schools that have bully control officers and they say, if you get bullied, you don't do anything about it. You go find someone else. So that's, it's, it's, it's perpetuating this victim mindset, right? I, I'm not in charge of my own life. Life isn't happening by me. Life is happening to me. Uh-huh. And so as, as we perpetuate that mindset, the ability to make courageous decisions becomes tougher and tougher. We just don't have the, the mental wiring. So what we have to do, and this is the whole framework I lay out in the book, and this is what neuroscience, and, and really it's only neuroscience that's been developed in the past five years, what it shows us how to do is actually rewire our brains for courage. And the first step in doing that is understanding when that amygdala is trying to hijack our thinking. So that little gland I talked about in the base of our brain, one of the things I tell people all the time is we should scare ourselves every single day. And, and, you know, jumping out of an airplane would be great or rappelling down the, the side of a mountain would be awesome, but we can't do that every day. So stand up at, at, uh, lunch and make a toast in front of all your coworkers, you know, or, or go sing karaoke or ask that girl out at the gym who you've been, you know, admiring from afar, all these things that scare you. We can find something every day to get us out of our comfort zone. When we do our body changes. And so just knowing that when you're going to do something scary, knowing that your body changes and really diving in and focusing on what those feelings are. You mentioned a couple when we were talking, everybody has a different set of what I call fear tells. When you get scared, your body, your physiology is going to react differently than someone else's. If you start to become aware of your physiology, then when you get in a high emotionally charged state and you feel those feelings again, you can say, hey, wait a minute. My amygdala is trying to do the thinking. I got to stop and step back. I got to use this power that's now coursing through my body because I'm thinking better and faster, but I can't make a reactive decision, which is what my amygdala, my amygdala wants to fight. It wants to uh, flee or it wants to freeze. Fight, flight, or freeze are the three things that the amygdala can do. So when you feel those, those changes in your body, it's going to be one of those three things. If you can say stop, and step back and, and become an observer and say, look, life is going to happen by me. I'm not going to react. I'm going to control the decision I make now. And I'm going to do a couple different levels of analysis to make sure I'm making the right decision. That's, that's really the key first step. Well, so the next step then I imagine is having the necessary tools to do accurate analysis. Yeah. So how does so, somebody, so the, go ahead. The, the, the exploration is a, is the, the key first part. So, being able to explore those fear tells 
you, you've got to scare yourself. And, and it really, this is where it helps to have a coach, right? So I've worked with 500 CEOs uh, all across the world to try and get their, try and help them understand their fear tells and then understand what I call their fear frontier, which is the, the trauma that they had before 10 or 12 years old. Because your, your fear tells will, will let you know when the amygdala is trying to hijack, your fear frontier is going to let you know how you respond in fearful situations. So the blue-collar kid from Boston is going to respond very differently than the baseball player from New York, right? Because we've got different fear frontiers. So I also want to make sure that people understand when I say this, that when you say the trauma you had when, before you were 10 or 12 years old, you don't mean that you had to get bent over a couch and beat with a belt. You don't mean that you had to be bullied by somebody. There, there are micro traumas, I imagine, that could build up and become a self-narrative. Is that true? Well, I, I wouldn't even call them micro traumas, Sean, because everybody experiences them. Part of populating our subconscious database is things that happen to us before we're 10 or 12 years old. And, and getting beat with a belt or getting getting uh, having your parents die in a, a car accident, those are obviously huge traumas. But being asked to come up in the front of the class when you don't know the answer and write it on the, on the blackboard, that's just as traumatic. Being able to, to say, you know, when the, when the girl made fun of you because, you know, you wore a goofy t-shirt to, to school, that's just as traumatic. So, it, 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 you know, when you're, these all come create something that neuroscientists call your prior beliefs. And your prior beliefs are all the information that is populating our database as children. And the fucked up thing is we have very little choice over what that is. Right? We don't choose where we're born. We don't choose what language we're speaking. We don't choose how many siblings we have. We don't choose the color of our skin. But all of those things are huge influences if we let them, if we, if we just uh, are happy with the prior beliefs that, that we had growing up. If we don't expand upon those, we'll always be stuck. And that's where prejudice and, and racism and, and everything else comes from. You talked about the victim mentality before that can come from being told you don't hit the bully back. You go tell somebody, you go find somebody. And yeah. I had a little moment of personal pride. My daughter was at a show uh, last week for school. Now she's like, she'll be five in February. And she was at her show and on stage they were doing this thing where they had their hands on their hips and they were like, you know, wiggling back and forth, like twisting. And my daughter starts absolutely unloading elbows on the kid next to her <laughs> for everybody to see, you know, there's a few hundred parents wow. in the audience and I'm like, what is going on? So after the show, I'm like, Hey Mackenzie, were you hitting the boy next to you? She's like, daddy, before we went on stage, he was trying to pick me up and hit me. And I did not like that. And I told him to stop and he didn't stop. And you told me if I tell somebody to stop and they keep doing it, I can hit them back. So I hit him back a lot. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> I was like, good, good. Let that kid have She's it. got the Mike Tyson fear. She's, she's putting that to work already. <laughs> well, let's, uh, you know, we got, we got to temper that back. She also still screams and cries every time, you know, she falls down and we're working through that. But, uh, but to get, to get to, how does this stuff affect our ability to like specifically spend money? I mean, people, I talk to people all the time who are interested in working with us on our coaching. And what I always am cognizant to do is give them the opportunity to say yes to work with us. I, by the way, only if I think that they're a fit, I give them the opportunity to say yes really early on in our conversation, because I know from my experience that everything in them wants to do it but there's this little voice that says you probably shouldn't. There's not enough certainty there. Yeah. What, what, like what yeah. if, what if, what if, what if, what if, and we spend the next yeah. 30 to 50 minutes dealing with all of their what ifs. Why does it take so long for someone to get there? What can they do to help themselves get there faster? So, so the awareness of two different things. One is loss aversion. And, uh, there were, there were two, um, psychologist who won the Nobel Prize in economics, oddly enough, Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman. And what they proved, they, they went to uh, hundreds of uh, research subjects and they said, look, we're going to flip a coin, 50-50 odds. If I win, I'll give you a buck. If you win, you, or sorry, if I win, 
you give me a buck. If you win, I'll give you a buck. And most people said, no, I'm not interested. And they said, okay, if you win, you get a dollar ten. And if I win, I just get a buck. And they said, no, still, still not good enough odds. They said a dollar twenty. No, no, still wouldn't, wouldn't do it. A dollar thirty, a fifty-fifty. You know, just do the math. No, I don't know. I couldn't do it. So they got up to before they could get is somewhere in the neighborhood of ninety percent of the people to say yes. They got up to two to one. Two to now, one. If you, two to one. If you think about how ridiculous that is, right? Uh, a casino is making billions of dollars on a one percent. Right? You win a buck. Uh, or I win a dollar and one penny. Yeah, and, and they're making billions on that on that little spread, right? That little arbitrage opportunity, and people tend to value <laughs> what they have twice as much as what they could get. And what that means to to answer your question, Sean, is that people are saying, "Look, I got a thousand bucks in the bank, and I know that thousand bucks is going to be in the bank. I don't know if I want to spend it on training." Because I'm not convinced that uh, you know that it's worth two thousand dollars, and so that fear of loss, that loss aversion, holds so many people back, right? And and it really puts a collar on how they can succeed because they're unwilling to look at the the future prospects. And the easiest way around that is to do something that that the Stoics call premeditation of evil. And when I was training for the Olympics. We did a ton uh, at the Olympic Training Center. We did a ton of visualization. So I spent a lot of time with a guy uh, named Shane Murphy, who was the U.S. Olympic team uh, team psychologist, and would go through this visualization. And first, it was just being relaxed, getting your mind very quiet, picturing the race, getting as many senses engaged as you could possibly do, and then see it all go really well. You win the race. Everyone's happy days. You're getting high fives big band playing, dancing girls, you name it. It's all there. So then what happened but the girl, is the girls are not on birth control. <laughs> right. Exactly. The dancing girls, exactly. Go on. Go on. Just wanted to make sure you knew so what we had. Uh, <laughs> we had, we had those great times and then all of a sudden things would start going wrong. So I'd be sitting there in, in the, you know, this kind of hypnotic state and Shane would say, okay, your, your or just clipped a buoy. You went from first to third place. I'd be like, what the fuck? This is visualization. This is supposed to be great. And it was really starting to premeditate the worst case scenario and then see how I'd react to it. So if your listeners can do that as well, what most people don't do is they figure out, look, if I lose this thousand dollars, I'm completely fucked. There goes my savings. And in fact, if you lose that thousand dollars, you'll have 10 different lessons that are going to help you get $10,000 more. And you have to have that mindset that, okay, well, if I invest this money, if I, you know, if I buy, you know, if you're, you own a gym and I buy one of these new uh, red light therapy things, you know, it's going to be five grand to buy this bed and it's going to take me six months to pay it back. And, and you might find that you don't get payback on the bed, but now everyone's thinking, well, this gym's really progressive because they invest in new technology. We want to be part of it. And, and someone might come to you and say, hey, I've got this new thing I want you to try out. And you guys seem to be open to this sort of thing. So everything, you know, this, this, um, this scarcity, people oftentimes have a, a fear of scarcity. And, and they don't look at the world as an abundant place because it goes against our genes. And it goes against our mental programming to think that we can always get whatever we want. And that's, that's why we crave sugar, right? Because our, our brains are wired to know that we only get sugar once every, you know, three months or four months when we're roaming through the jungle uh, hunting and gathering. Whereas now it's completely available to us. So, so pe- many people can't control their, you know, their addiction to sugar. That's interesting. I, I think that um, you touched on something really key, which was for me as a listener, somebody might need to see the thing that they're buying is twice as valuable as the money that it costs, because only then are the odds in their favor enough that they're willing to take the risk. And that strikes me as very important, both for somebody who's trying to sell something to somebody and someone who's considering buying, because we never, ever, 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 ever make the kinds of claims that we are going to double your income. 
it happens yeah. all the time. All our clients have that happen probably more often than not within the first six months, but we never promise it because my thought process is let's just promise them something that's very, very, very dependable and then delight as opposed to promising them that they're going to make double their income. And then when it happens, they're like, yeah, I mean like that's what you said was going to happen, right? It's not that good. You doubled your yeah. income in six months, man. So Yeah, exactly. But but so that makes sense as a reason why it would take me longer to help these people through their fears that it's worth buying because they're not I'm never selling them that you're gonna double your income. And and this is one of the reasons, Sean, that, that money back guarantees are are so successful. Right? When people say they look, we'll we'll give you a money back guarantee, no questions asked. And this is why you know, Amazon and, and Zappos and, and all these companies have had huge success. They understand the wiring of our brains for that loss aversion, for that fear. And they say, look, if you, if these shoes don't fit and they don't look great with your dress, you know, then, then put them back in the box. You bring them back. There's, you have, you're not going to lose anything. And, and Patrick, that's, you know, that's, that's so true. Just, I, I don't mean to cut you off. I want to make sure I, I pound that because I'm, I'm on it. I spent last year close to seventy seventy five thousand dollars getting myself educated, working with coaches who are helping me become better at what I do, and I held off from ordering from Amazon Fresh for my groceries for so long because I'm like, what if they send us bad apples? Yeah, <laughs> right. And then my wife my wife looked into it and it was like they'll take the apples back. All right, then do it. And that, that's, that's yeah. what it took. Just like that. Yes. And, and so what you're doing is mitigating that loss aversion. And anyone who's selling out there, like if, you know, if you're running a gym or if, you're, uh, if you've got a, some sort of practice and, and you aren't saying, look, I'll give you your money back if you're not satisfied. You're crazy. Because you can, you can take those people down from needing a two-to-one payback, needing twice as much value, to just needing equal value, right? Because as soon as they understand it, they say, okay, well, I'm not, I'm not afraid of loss because there is no loss. It's guaranteed. And now when you, when you talk about money back guarantees, does it start to bring the wrong audience in? And what I, what I mean by that is, is it, is it now the people, is there a preconceived, I'm not going to work as hard for this because if I don't get it, I'm just going to get my money back because when, when we work with people, we do give them a money back guarantee on our course for coaches because we've, we've put close to a thousand people through it. And we know that if you do what we ask you to do, when we ask you to do it, you're going to make your money back before our course is even over, which, which is life changing for a lot of coaches because now they can do that forever and they can skill stack on it. When it comes to um, the coaches, we've never really had an issue with that. Our bigger commitment that we ask people for is when you're a gym owner and you want to jump into our course, it's a full year long where we educate your staff and we educate you in different ways on similar things. My concern is if we offered a money back guarantee on that, the fear of loss that they have once they've bought would go away and they wouldn't do the things that they need to do to help their gyms go from, for example, 18000 to $42,000 in one case in the last four months. You know, from $4,000 to $12,000 in another case in the last month and a half. That kind of stuff happens. Yeah. I'm afraid that if we gave them a money that guarantee, they just wouldn't do what it takes. Am I wrong? Wouldn't it? Did you hear your language? You're afraid. You're afraid if you gave them that guarantee that something bad would happen to you. So, well, so, the, so, so the, I, I want to be clear. I'm not worried about it happening to me. I'm worried about it happening to them. Well, no, no, you're, you said you're afraid that if they, if they had the guarantee after a month, they wouldn't work as hard. Right. But I'm not, but I'm not worried about that from my pocket, right? We make enough money. I always want to make more, but it's not about our bank account. It's about the gym who came to me because nobody else had solved their problem. And now here I was ready to solve it for them. And because they didn't have any fear of the financial loss, if they did not take action, that that's gone. And now they're like, okay, well, yeah, there's no risk here. I'm just going to, that's a little uncomfortable. I'm not going to do that. So, I mean, I think there's, there's two things that come to mind when you say that, Sean, I know, you know, having listened to your podcast in the past that, that your mission is to win. Right. And, and to push yourself if, if I remember correctly. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so do you feel like you're losing 
is this guy comes on board and he's not doing something kick-ass for his gym because he's, he's decided not to put the effort in because he feels like there's a money-get-back guarantee. So is it going against your mission? No, it's not. Um, it, does, it does bother me because it feels like a waste of time, and that's, okay. that's definitely true. I think I've developed, I've practiced developing, so I hope I've done it, developed a level of empathy where I feel for that person. Because now they're in even worse of a mental state where they're like, yeah, nothing works for me. And I, mm-hmm. I, I do not want to leave people who've ever worked with us feeling that way. So I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a natural reaction. So what you have to do, if, if, you've, if you've got any kind of fear like this, this is part of the platform that I lay out, is if you look two or three layers down in your decision-making so start out, your decision-making would be on the year-long program, we want to offer money-back guarantee, right? That's, that's decision node number one. Your initial fear reaction is if we do that, the, the gym owners might not uh, put in the same effort. So either they won't get as much out of it, we won't get uh, those strong referrals. Our data says that you know right now we double everyone's income in the first year or whatever, and that might start to go down. We have all those things that are saying – that could happen. That's one possibility. So now you have to go down two or three layers. And this is what the amygdala doesn't want you to do. This is where we have to engage part of our brain called the prefrontal cortex is laying out these multi-layer decisions. So the next one would be, okay, if I sign them up for it, uh, I've got this fear. How can I mitigate that fear? Let's, let's pretend this person is going to go all year long. And then, then at the end of it, say, you know, I didn't get as much out of it as I thought. So maybe the first thing is, okay, we'll give a money-back guarantee after the first 30 days. 30 days into it, if they aren't pleased with the way things are going, they can get 100% back. And then we want them to keep working. So maybe 90 days into it, we'll offer 30% back. So by 90 days, they've got an incremental amount that they can get back. And then by the end of the year, you know, they don't get anything back because they've had us there coaching, adding value, changing their business. So you start to come up with much more creative ways of solving these problems. If you can step back when you initially, you know, when you're sitting there with the team, someone says, Hey, Sean, we got to offer these guys hundred percent money back guarantee. First thing that's going to happen is your amygdala is going to kick in and say, no way could cost us money. They might not be motivated. Boom, boom, boom. But it's at that point when you have to stop, there's some breathing exercises you can do. Try and clear out your mind when your body's still in this reactive state, because now you've got all these super human chemicals that are pumping through your body. And this is, this is what it's like to, you know, to, to be David Ortiz in the bottom of the ninth inning in the world series, right? Standing up at the plate, you got all this stuff going through your body, but now you're going to focus it into really good performance. And it's something, by the way, for all you Yankees fans, A-Rod could never do. (laughs) (laughs) I grew up an unfortunate Met fan for the record. They were great when I was three oh, yeah. years old. They won the World Series when I was three years old, and they haven't done a damn thing since. With, but, with uh, what's his name? Doc Gooden, right? Doc Gooden, Daryl Strawberry, Keith Hernandez, Mookie Strawberry, Wilson. Yeah, yeah 1986. Um, all right. I like that. And, and I, I, I imagine that, that what you just described goes the same way on the buying side. Because, right? I mean, Absolutely. look, when, when, I, when I bought some of the ex- more expensive coaching programs that I've bought, and that included me having to go fly somewhere to get the coaching – I'm like, oh, what if I don't get any return on this? And it's like, well, yeah. let's walk through that. Let's walk through that specifically. Yeah. Uh, so I imagine that anyone who's you know, on the other side of that conversation can, can do the same thing you just described. So, so one of the richest guys in the world uh, is a guy named Ray Dalio. Yes. He uh, started a company called Bridgewater. And he started it. He went to Harvard Business School got out of Harvard Business School, started managing um, stocks for, for friends of his family, built up this great business, and then uh, predicted accurately this, this Mexican debt crisis and its impact on the stock market. And he said to all his clients, he said, we're going to short everything. Stocks are going to die, blah, blah, blah. And he did. And, he, and that was sort of his claim to fame. So two years after that, uh, the U.S. economy was in turmoil. So Congress asked him to come in and testify about what's going to happen with the economy. And he said, you know, stocks are going to take a plunge again. And they said, you know, uh, how do you know? And he said, I just know. 
and so he had all his all his clients do the same thing again: shorted stocks and sell everything short and and get ready for a market plunge. And the market took off, right? So stocks went up. His company, all his all his clients lost all their money. He went out of business. He had to go to his dad, borrow four thousand dollars to start up his business again. And he said in a, a number of different interviews that was the best thing that ever happened to him. Because he went from knowing he was right to asking himself, how do I know I'm right? And then sitting down and laying out in a, in a way that, you know, is a little slightly different from what I just described, laying out a decision tree of these multi-layer decisions. If I make this first one, how do I know I'm right and, and what will happen? If I make this second one after that, how do I know I'm right? What will happen? And, and so he... He went from just knowing he was right to making himself prove, how do I know I'm right? It kind of sounds like Dan Sullivan's impact filter, if you're familiar with that. I don't know. It's basically, yeah. it, it, it's a simplified version of what you described, which is, you know, if we do take this action, what is the best case scenario and what is the worst case scenario if we don't? Yeah. And then it's just writing it all yeah. up. Okay. And now, Patrick, is this stuff covered in the book that you have coming out? It is. So uh, there's a number of different um, explorations that we do in the book. There's about six or seven. And then I lay out the platform for how you can go beyond just choosing courage, because there's there's a part of our brain that most people never even hear about. That's the courage center. And it's called the the SGACC, uh, the subgenial anterior cingulate cortex. And that is literally that's simple to remember. Dude, that just rolls off the tongue. I, I literally sit in front of the mirror and practice saying that so I can do that in this <laughs> podcast. I hope your listeners enjoy that. Perfect. <laughs> so, uh, so we can we can learn how to use that courage center, or we can continue to rely on the amygdala doing you know what it wants for us. But an easy way to keep this in mind is you know you've got your daughter, I've got my three kids. If if you were walking outside and you saw your house on fire and heard screaming, I don't know any one of your listeners who would hesitate to run in and, and get their kid who is in the burning building, right? We, we've got that motivation. We have that courage when we need to, when we know that something brave is at stake. So what you can train yourself to do, and I walk through this in the book, is activate that courage center every day by just imagining that that someone you love or something you care the most about is in a burning building and your decision is going to impact them. And so if you use that, if you use that courage center, you're going to start to fire neurons together that connect your data input and the things that are happening to you with that courage center. So when you start to use those neurons, those neurons that start to fire together will soon wire together and then courage becomes your default decision-making. So uh, we started out the podcast with me telling you I was the biggest wimp in the world, like I was terrified of everything. And then after I died and I learned how to access that part of my brain, my superpower. So and hold on one second there, Patrick. You the, After you yeah. said the word brain, we yeah. lost internet. So you said, Uh-oh. after I died and learned how to access that part of my brain. Yeah, okay. So after I was at Hopkins and went through my death experience, I started to be able to access that part of my brain, which was the courage center. And the more and more I accessed that, the more it had this incredible halo effect on my life. So I started uh, getting way more successful in business, even though I went from working 80 hours to working you know, a more normal 50 or 60 hours a week and my relationships started to get way better with my wife, with my kids. I started to see my friends more often. I was training for adventures and, and races. I set a couple of world records and just kept trying to push myself more and more to see how much courage I really had. And, and we have the ability to make those neurons that fire together, wire together. And any one of your listeners can learn courage they can learn confidence, and then they can learn how to use fear as fuel. So the book is called Fear as Fuel. It, and I mean, it's 
Learning how to be courageous and confident so that you can use fear as the ultimate performance enhancement tool. And my question to you as the author of the book is this. Um, will it do that? And what I mean by that is, am I going to read, are people going to read this book and be like, that was cool? Or are people going to read this book and be like, I need to read this book again and I need to do it again and take notes. And then I need to go back to chapter one and practice. I need to go back to chapter two and practice. You know, some books that makes sense. Other books, it's, they're just cool reads. Yeah. So your, your point that you mentioned earlier, and this is what came to mind when you said, am I going to have the commitment to get on the airplane, to, to go to that thing and, and to really engage? And people will pick up two or three really cool cocktail party things on the first read through, right? If they, if they get the book and, and they read it or they, uh, they get the audio version or whatever and listen to it at the gym, they'll pick up uh, a handful of really cool neuroscience stuff, stuff that's not even published yet because it hasn't been peer reviewed and all that stuff. If they engage with it and they, they write notes and they do the exercises and, and they go back and they, they practice some of these things, these explorations, and then the, the platform, it'll change their life. And, and I've seen it a ton of times. I've, I've seen it with corporations who are trying to create a culture of courage. I've seen it with sales teams who have that, you know, one of the biggest things that, that happens to sales teams, especially if they're guys like me who come from a blue collar background, they start making 250, 300 a year. They get the Porsche, they get the country club, you know, membership or private school for their kids. Then they stop selling mm -hmm. because they become afraid of losing all that shit. They could be making a million bucks a year, but that, but what happens is they hit that, that upper, you know, that upper limit, that ceiling. And then they think, man, what if I lose all this? And they stop getting, they stop, you know, taking swings at the bat, taking swings at the ball because, they feel they become so debilitated by that loss aversion. So 100%. I give them, I, I give them a lot of techniques in the book, how to keep that from happening. I would love to share that book with a, I, I would say a friend of mine now owns a gym that does well over a million dollars a year and had a lot of trepidation about trying some things because he was afraid he would lose it. And I was like, yeah. Dude, you've never, you, you've never lost anything catastrophic in your gym. You're not going to lose anything catastrophic. Let, what's the fear? Let's break it down. You know, the, um, uh, I know this CEO of Lifetime Fitness who's ordering a thousand copies of the book for his employees. Mm -hmm. And one of the, one of the reasons is, you know, he'll say to me, we do the Leadville 100 together a year and we have for 10 years now. And, uh, and he'll say to me, it's like, you know, uh, a lot of these people just uh, are afraid to take risks and they don't have risk management skills. So this is a certain extent, uh, risk management skills. That's coming from uh, an immigrant, you know, from Iran who came to this country as a personal trainer and now is, you know, as, as you can see from looking at how his company's done, just about a billionaire. And so uh, uh, that's, that's the kind of story I want every one of your listeners to be able to have. I'm, I'm with you. I don't think they'll all get to being billionaires, but it would be very cool if they could start making financial decisions with their conscious mind as opposed to their subconscious mind. That would be cool. That's, no. that's exactly right. And, and in order to do that, Sean, I want to point this out. You've got to populate your subconscious database. You've got to take control of it because we make about 75% of our decisions subconsciously. And if you let other people put in their information and you're not changing that and you're not adding to those prior beliefs, then you'll never be able to get to that, that point of fulfillment and happiness and success. Well, and Patrick, one of the things that I see that goes with books that I know obviously you do, the book, by the way, for those of you guys who are interested, is going to come out on February 3rd, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? February 3rd, yeah. You can go to fearisfuel.com to check it out. Or, of course, it's available uh, now for pre-order on Amazon and Books A Million and Barnes & Noble and all Are you going to read it to us in your sultry voice? Are we going to get a, an audio version? <laughs> you are getting an audio version, and you'll like this, Sean, because uh, the audio version is going to be super unique, and it's going to be read by a uh, former professional baseball player who now is a commentator on ESPN and a few other places. And he's going to read it. And then we're going to do a, uh, a little podcast at the end, you know, do like a 10 or 15 minute podcast at the end of each chapter 
with myself and some of the people that I've profiled within the book. That's so it's, cool. it's going to be super cool. When is yeah. that? When is that coming wicked. out? Cool. So that we're targeting uh, St. Patrick's Day, interestingly enough, March 17th. No surprise. Okay. And now you've <laughs> Not done- Not surprisingly, Sean. <laughs> you mentioned that you, you've done 40 keynotes in the last year or so. And, and yeah. are there any of those that stand out that if people want to learn more from you, Patrick, they can start there and continue to warm up to the idea of getting that book? Yeah, you bet. I, I, I've got uh, on my website, I've got ex excerpts from a bunch of my keynotes, probably the best one that people can look at uh, that, that's really informative is the International Franchise Association. So uh, Gary Vaynerchuk was the opening keynote speaker. I was the closing keynote speaker to their 4,000 members. And, suck it, um, Gary. And it, what's that? <laughs> I said, suck it, Gary. Patrick's closing the show. That's, I'm closing the show. <laughs> And uh, he was, yeah, he's spectacular. But the, the thing that I think resonated with most of those people, which I think is germane to your audience, is they were all franchisee owners, right? So, so they've, they've got everything from Dunkin' Donuts to Melting Pot to, to whatever. And a lot of them had fears about going to the next level. So they, they had that first gym, if you will. They had that, that first restaurant or whatever. And they were afraid to try new innovations. They were afraid to get on Uber Eats. They were afraid of all this. Did the talk with them, had a couple really great points. And then I almost immediately had six people, and now it's, you know, now it's probably close to a dozen, come up to me afterwards and say, look, we're a franchise called Bumperman. We've got our annual convention in Dallas. We want you to speak to every one of our franchisees. We're, you know, we're melting pot. We want you to speak to every one of our franchisees. So it really hit home with them. And I think that's for your audience, the way you describe it to me, Sean, I think they get some really interesting stuff. So if they search international franchise association, Sweeney, uh, they'll find some excerpts from that, that talk, which I think will be really helpful for them. Very cool. And then I know that you have a major contest going on right now. It is big. It's a pre-order contest. Uh, your listeners have now a couple weeks left to get involved with it. And it closes when the book releases on midnight, February 3rd, uh, 2020. So what, what does and, that mean? Uh, what is a pre-order contest? I order a book. Is, it, is my book essentially my raffle ticket? Your book is a raffle ticket. If you do, so actually anyone can do it if you just send in your email. You get one entry. You buy a book and you send proof of that, that uh, book, you get two points. You get mm -hmm. two entries. You buy a book, you leave a verified review on Amazon, you get three entries. So you can see where it goes up. So we've got four or five different types of entries. The prizes are spectacular. They're they're priceless. You know the the it'd probably be fifty to seventy five grand for anyone to replicate these. One of the first is uh, the grand the two grand prizes. One is going through a fear weekend with me, doing some really cool stuff like paragliding or or um, uh, rock climbing and rappelling and getting in touch with your fear. The other one, which is super cool. Do we want to tell your listeners about it? Yeah, man, for sure. <laughs> so Lance Armstrong has graciously agreed to take anyone who, who uh, wants to as a grand prize winner out on a mountain bike ride in Aspen. And then afterwards sit in the studio with him while he films his tour de France show. So it's any of the three weeks in July you get to ride one-on-one -on -one with Lance and me and have an amazing trip and then sit in on uh, the filming of the Tour de France show. So that is something he's never offered before and is off the hook in terms of prizes. I mean, that's that's crazy cool. Yeah, that's very yeah, definitely cool. Is. Patrick, where, where can people who listen to this show who want more from you find you? You mentioned going to your website, but is that, that website's not fearisfuel.com. What is that website? So fearisfuel.com has all the information about the book and, and the fear institute that I run for corporations. My website is pjsweeney.com and that is, uh, we've got the adventure hub, lots of information, uh, probably, you know, 75 or so different blog and video entries and, and that sort of thing. They can also find me on Instagram, the fear guru or Twitter, uh, PJ Sweeney. This is badass, Patrick. I appreciate you giving me some time today, my man from France. Uh, Sean, it is my pleasure, and uh, hopefully 
you can come over here, enjoy a little uh, red wine, some cheese, and I, and we'll hang out and have some fun. I you don't have to twist my arm. Bring it on. All right. Thanks for coming on, Patrick. Appreciate your time. John, thanks, thanks a million. I appreciate it. And thank all your listeners for taking the time to out of their day, which I know is busy to listen to us. All right. That's going to be a wrap for this episode of the Active Life Podcast. And guys, remember, remember, if you are looking to enhance your fitness business, if you're sitting there thinking, man, I would love to be able to go on vacations. I would love to be able to take two weeks off and not have my business fall apart. And most importantly, most importantly, if you want to be a part of the movement that we are creating, facilitating, and seeing come to life, which is coaches and gyms becoming the healthcare clinic of the future, helping people who've gotten hurt working out, helping people who've been told they have to work out around that, Having people be told they're too old to do that. Find new hobbies. If hearing things like that for your clients is frustrating for you and you want to learn the skills to solve those problems and also get paid very well to do it, head to activelifeprofessional.com and let's get talking. Till then, turn pro.